The following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. To learn more about who we are, visit irvingbible.org new. Well, good morning, everybody. How we doing? It's good to see you guys. If you have a Bible with you, grab it and let's go to Luke chapter 22, the gospel of Luke chapter 22 this morning. Uh, Last week, we started this new sermon series called Our Life Together, where we're looking at the practices of the church, what we do when we gather together as a family, as as a body. And I began last week with kind of the fundamental premise of the whole series, and that is church is weird. Right? And, and I don't mean by that church people are weird, which may or may not be true, but what we do when we assemble together is odd. It's, it's peculiar. When you compare what we do together to the rest of our lives, what, what we do here is kind of strange. And for some of us, it doesn't feel particularly strange because we're just so accustomed to it. And what can happen is we wind up sort of just going through the motions and, and not really thinking about what it is that we do when we assemble together. For others, it's new and therefore unfamiliar and may seem confusing or even off-putting. The reality that the church is weird has been around from the very beginning. In the late second century, there was a writer named Meniscus Felix who wrote a dialogue called the Octavius in which there was a dialogue between uh, a man named Octavius, who was a Christian, and a man named um, Cacilius, who was a pagan. And Cacilius, in the dialogue, Cacilius says to Octavius, you Christians are the worst breed ever to affect the world. You deserve every punishment that you get. Nobody likes you. It would be better if you and your Jesus had never been born. We hear that you are all cannibals. You eat the flesh of your children in your sacred meetings. Wow, how's that? Um, just want you to know, if you're, if you're new to IBC, there will be no babies being consumed in the service today. Um, your kids are quite safe in our nursery. Right? We're, we're not cannibals. Where on earth would that kind of charge come from? Well, think about it. As the church began to spread throughout the Greco-Roman world, rumors began to take hold that when these Christians gather together for worship, They eat someone's flesh and drink someone's blood. And so the rumor began to spread that they were a bunch of cannibals. Today, we're going to talk about communion. Why is it that each week when we gather together, why is it that we partake of these elements that remind us of Christ's body and Christ's blood? Why is it that we do it? Why is it that we do it the way that we do it? And why is it that we do it as often as we do it? We do this weekly around here. So that's what we're going to explore together. But but, but before we dive into this passage that gives us Jesus' last meal with his friends before his death, I want you just to take note of something I think is really important. When Jesus wanted to explain to his disciples the meaning of what was about to happen to him, he didn't preach a sermon. He didn't give a lecture. He didn't expound a theory, right? He didn't put together a a PowerPoint slide deck. He he gave them a meal. And I think this is just as a reminder that if you think about it, tables are one of the most fundamental things that make us human. No other animal eats at a table. And tables remind us that for humans, eating is about so much more than merely fuel. Sharing a table together is something that deeply connects us 
one with another. It's that most vital means of human connection and we are often most fully alive to life when we are sharing a table. That's why it should come as no surprise to us that throughout both the Old and New Testament, God shows up at tables. That's why at the center of the spirituality of both the old covenant people of God, the people of Israel, and the new covenant people of God, the church, at the center of the spiritual lives of both the old covenant and new covenant peoples of God is a meal. For the old covenant people of God, the, the meal of Passover. For the new covenant people of God, Jesus imbued that meal with new meaning connected to his sacrifice, the Lord's Supper, communion. And so this morning, we want to take a look at this story of this meal that Jesus left his disciples and has given to us. Luke chapter 22, we're gonna begin in verse seven. It says, then the day came, uh, the day of unleavened bread on which Passover lamb was to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go ahead and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked. He replied, you're to enter the city and a man uh, carrying a water jar will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large room upstairs, all finished. Make preparations there. And they left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. I love this, this like little, uh, I mean, Jesus saying, okay, you're gonna go into town. There's gonna be a guy with a jar. Watch the guy with the jar, follow him to the house, go to the owner of the house and say, the teacher, right? This whole, it's like the spy novel here, right? They're sneaking around, but Jesus has arranged it all for them to go in and to find this place where they can celebrate the Passover together. So the context for this story, the context for this meal is the context of Passover. Passover was the most primal story. The story that most defined the people of Israel was the Passover story. The story of God rescuing his people from the tyranny of Pharaoh. God's old covenant people, the people of Israel, were were enslaved in Egypt. And God shows himself to be the great liberator, the great rescuer, delivering them from the tyranny of Pharaoh. And the Jews of Jesus' day would be rehearsing this story over and over and over again to sustain them in hope under the tyranny of Rome. It's like a group of prisoners telling prison break stories right under the nose of the prison guards. The Passover was about both memory and expectation, right? In memory, they looked back to the great liberation, the the, the great rescue of God, of his people of old. But they also looked ahead expecting God to do it again, expecting rescue and deliverance. The Passover looked back and looked ahead. It looked back to what God had done. It looked ahead to what God was yet to do. And the the Passover powerfully reminded them of this fundamental truth. Our God is a rescuer. He did it once. He'll do it again. Now, when we see this practice for the people of Israel, this is one of the great feasts, the great festivals that are repeated annually in the life of Um, this ancient people, and it was for them, to understand Passover is to understand that it was for them a communal embodied rhythm of remembrance. A communal embodied rhythm of remembrance. Communion, that is that, that, that we do this together. A communal embodied Um, That it was not just, they were not just supposed to remember with their minds. They were to remember with their bodies. 
Um, for them, for example, one of the great feasts was the festival of Sukkot, the, the Feast of Tabernacles, where they were to remember God's deliverance of his people, uh, his faithfulness to his people when they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. And for them to remember that wasn't just to tell the story, wasn't just to call it to mind. It was actually to build a little hut and camp out for a week to really enter into with a full-bodied experience of remembering. So Passover was a, a memorial meal where together they remembered with their mouths, with their taste buds. They remembered a communal embodied rhythm. They were to do this repeatedly to drive the story more deeply into their hearts and minds, a communal embodied rhythm of remembrance. And so we see them engage in this meal together, picking up in verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat again until it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, these guys had grown up their whole life observing Passover. They, they knew the, the script. They, they knew the rhythm of the whole thing. And so they're going along, they're engaging these elements, and then suddenly things change, things shift. Imagine they're having a celebratory dinner party, and then Jesus begins to talk about his suffering. Jesus begins to talk about his death. The, the, the mood in the room changes. Jesus, as he is going through this meal with his disciples, says, this isn't just about then it's not just about the past, it is about the present, it's about the future. He makes reference here to the, to the coming kingdom of God. It's, it's not just about the past, it's about the present, it's about the future. It's not just about Moses, it's about me. It's about you. So Jesus takes bread and he says to them, this bread, this is my body. For them, we have to understand, for them, bread was life. It was the basic source of sustenance in this first century world. Bread was life. And so Jesus is, is saying, in essence, this bread is my body. This, my body is your life. Think about it. For, for you to live, you have to eat. And for you to eat, something has to die, right? A, a, a vegetable, a, an animal, for, for you to eat, something has to die. And Jesus says, my death is for your life. My body is given for you that you might live. And then he takes the cup. And in the traditional Passover meal, there are actually four cups, four different times through the evening that they partake of the wine together. Uh, the four cups are called the, the cup of sanctification, the cup of deliverance, the cup of redemption, and the cup of praise. Two of the cups are taken before the meal, and two of the cups are taken after the meal. And so the cup of sanctification, the cup of deliverance would have been consumed before the meal, but then Luke says it was after the meal, Jesus took the cup. So this would have been the third cup, which is the cup of redemption. 
And with the cup of redemption, the people would remember the words of Isaiah, I'm sorry, of Exodus 6, verse 6. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, the Lord says. And now Jesus says, the cup of redemption. I will redeem you. Jesus' arms stretched out on the cross, his blood that was shed on our behalf. Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. A covenant is, is an agreement. It's a, it's a promise. It's a binding relationship. And the old covenant had established uh, the, the, the repeated sacrifices. The new covenant says, this agreement, this relationship, this binding relationship is established through my one time for all time sacrifice on your behalf. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink it and remember me. Now, I think we need to um, think for a moment about the significance of the word is in what Jesus says, because there's been debates down through the centuries about this important word when Jesus says, this is my body. And Christians have been wrestling uh, with one another over the significance of that word is for centuries. On one end of the spectrum, a whole host of, of, of possibilities and opinions, on one end of the spectrum is the Roman Catholic view that teaches what's called transubstantiation. The Roman Catholic view says there's actually a miracle that takes place in the distribution of these elements, that the miracle that takes place is that this wafer may look like a wafer, may taste like a wafer, may feel like a wafer, but it's not a wafer anymore. This has actually become the body of Jesus. And this cup that may look like wine, smell like wine, taste like wine, but it actually has become the blood of Christ. It's a double miracle that, that they call transubstantiation. That's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum, held by many in the evangelical tradition, is sort of a, a, a tradition that says, nothing's really happening here. And, uh, and so we think about this, this spectrum. I remember a number of years ago, this, uh, this, uh, I was mortified. I had the opportunity to speak at a family camp. I would speak several times uh, over several years at this camp. And the week that I would speak would change from summer to summer. But the people that attended the camp, they would come the same week every year. So they would all be together. And one year I showed up only to discover that this was the week that there were a whole bunch of folks from a Roman Catholic church that came to this family camp together. At the end of the week, it was the camp's tradition to observe the Lord's Supper. And so the way they did it at this camp is that um, we would take a loaf of bread and, and I, the speaker, would go around to each family and I would break off a big chunk and I would hand it to each family and that they would then tear it and pass it around to the members of the family. Well, I took this loaf of bread and I began to tear it and it was the crumbliest bread that I've ever encountered. Right? And so it's just, it's just making crumbs all over the floor and I'm mortified by this. Now, if they're good Roman Catholics, they know nothing's actually happening because I'm not an ordained priest. And for them, only the ordained priest can actually consecrate the elements for them believing in this miracle of transformation. On the, on the other end of the spectrum, I'll never forget years ago, uh, when Kim and I went out to West Virginia to be with her parents at Christmas one year, and the people in this little Baptist church where my father-in-law um, so faithfully served, but they really wanted to do a Christmas Eve service. Many of them had actually grown up Roman Catholic, and so they wanted to do a Christmas Eve service that was kind of familiar to their tradition, and they wanted to have communion. And he was very reticent to do communion because of his perception of their misunderstanding. And so when he agreed to do communion, the, the setup for communion was all about, there's nothing happening here, right? Nothing to see here. And I think we can find ourselves in between these two poles on that spectrum, just recognizing 
that this celebration, what we do when we come to these elements is like Israel of old, a communal embodied rhythm of remembrance. That it's, that it's not necessary to posit this miracle of transformation, but it's also not to say this is just a sort of calling to mind, but it actually is for us a entering in, just like Israel of old, bringing the past into the present, even as we anticipate the future, that it all comes together in this communal embodied rhythm of remembrance. That's what it is and, 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 and why we do it really, um, or, or why we do it this way really connects to this idea of remembering being more than merely mental. It's not just this is a mnemonic device for us. It's a embodied response that we remember with our bodies. And so we stand and we come forward and we file past the elements. We remember with our feet, with our hands, with our teeth, with our taste buds. We remember with our whole bodies reaching back to the past looking ahead to the future. So what is communion? It is a communal embodied rhythm of remembrance. Why do we do it this way? To remember with our whole bodies, our feet, our hands, our teeth, our taste buds. Now, one important note about the way we do it at Irving Bible Church is this morning we are um, returning to a practice that is a part of our church congregation for years that we kind of put on hold at the time of the pandemic. And so we're revisiting this practice that's called intinction. Intinction is an ancient uh, form of participating in communion that goes all the way back at least to the fourth century where um, the church actually partakes of the elements by taking the wafer and dipping it in the juice. And so this morning you'll see there's a bowl with the juice where you'll take the wafer and you'll dip it. Now, it's important that I sort of point that out to you before you come forward, since it's a little different than what we've been doing. And maybe some of you are new and never seen it done like this before. Some of you that have been around a long time, you're thinking, yes, this is back to what we used to do before. Um, but, but I give you a story of a cautionary tale. My buddy Lance, uh, years ago, uh, attended a church for the first time that practiced intinction, and he'd never seen it before, he'd never done it before, and he made the mistake of sitting on the front row. And so when it was time to come forward, the ushers released them and he came forward and he saw the wafer there. So he took the wafer and then he saw the bowl sitting there. So he just grabbed it, picked it up and took a big swig. <laughs> Went back to his seat only to see the rest of the church file past and dip and kind of look at him a little funny, right? <laughs> so I offer that to you by way of cautionary tale. You're gonna get the wafer and your first impulse is to pop it right in. Hold off because we're dipping, right? We're going back to the form of intinction. This is what communion is. This is why we do it this way. But, but I sometimes get asked, why do we do it this often? Why do, why do we do it weekly? And uh, sometimes the sentiment is accompanied with something like, you know, by doing it so often, it kind of loses its significance, right? Through overfamiliarity, perhaps. Maybe we should do it like some other churches do, where they do it once a month or some even once a quarter. And, and I just wonder, what if we applied that logic to everything else we do? Right? If we said, you know, we really want to make it special, so we're only going to sing once a month or once a quarter. Or, or we really want it to be special, so Barry, you're just going to get up there and preach once a month or once a quarter. Some of you are a little too enthusiastic, I think, about that idea. Um, we don't apply the same logic to everything else we do. These are things that we do weekly. And you could think about even that logic as it applies to something like me telling my children that I love them. I could say, you know, I really, when I tell my kids I love them, I really want it to be special. So I'm only gonna do it once a quarter. 
Right? Every three months, I'll make sure, I'll put it on the calendar to make sure I'm gonna tell my kids I love them. Right? Does that make any sense at all? No, the, the issue isn't how frequently, it's, the issue is the condition of my heart. There's my heart in it when I tell my kids I love them. And every time we come to the table, the issue isn't the frequency, it's how's my heart? And I'll tell you what my heart needs, why my heart needs to come weekly to this table. A few reasons that I thought about this week about why my heart needs it every week. The first one is for me, I need to be reminded that my sin is a big deal. And the reason that I need to be reminded of that is that sadly, frankly, there are times when sin is no big deal to me. And I need to come to the table to be reminded that, that sin is a big deal to God. That Jesus laid down his life for my sins, for our sins, because sin is a big deal to God. And that doesn't mean that, that if we have sin in our life that we should not come to the table. I, I don't think that's what I'm suggesting at all. But there is a need for us to examine our hearts before we come to the table. 1 Corinthians 11, 27, 28. Paul writes to the church in Corinth there who were... Uh, carrying on in all kinds of troubling ways and then coming to the Lord's table. And Paul gives them a warning and he says, so then whenever you eat the bread and drink the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, you're guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink from the cup. Now, I don't think that means you've got to be perfect to come to the table. I, I don't think it means that you've got to have... Your, your act together. You gotta have your life together that you, that you can't come if you're struggling. I don't think it means that at all. I think that Paul would say, if you're struggling, if you hate your sin, but it's got a grip on you, fly to the table. Be reminded, be reminded of the reality of Christ's love for you. Be reminded of the reality that your sin is a big deal. But what he's saying is, if you have areas of your life that you are content to persist in, that you're holding out from God, then you're partaking in an unworthy manner. Examine yourselves before you come and see if there are things that you need to bring to God, to bring into the light, to experience his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness. That every invitation to the table is an invitation to repentance. That every invitation to the table is an invitation to self-examination. I need it. My heart needs it because I need to be reminded that my sin is a big deal, but, but, but greater still, I need it because I need to be reminded every week that I am loved beyond imagination. That despite my flaws, my, my failures, despite my feebleness, that I am loved beyond imagination, that the love of God is greater than we dare to hope or dream, that the hold of God is greater than we dare to hope or dream. One of the ways the Lord's Supper is talked about is with the, the word Eucharist. And some of us that aren't Roman Catholic, we hear that and we think it sounds Catholic and we're sort of afraid of it. But the word Eucharist just comes from the Greek word that's right here in this story, to give thanks, eucharizo, to give thanks. And that we ought to come to the table with profound gratitude for the love of God that loves us beyond our ability to fully grasp or imagine how high and long and wide and deep is the love of God in Christ. That we might know that love that surpasses ability to understand. I came across a wonderful little quote from a preacher named Lee Eklov in his sermon, The Sinner's Feast. And he says, this table is different. This table of the Lord's isn't where sinners find Christ, but where sinners celebrate being found by him. 
Maybe some morning, instead of solemnly passing the trays, we should dance for joy. Maybe we should sing every born-again song we know. Maybe we should tell our homecoming stories and laugh like people who no longer fear death. Maybe we should ask if anyone wants seconds and hold our little cups high to toast lost sisters found dead brothers alive. We come to express our gratitude for the reality that we are loved beyond imagination. I need to remember that my sin is a big deal. I need to be reminded that I'm loved beyond imagination. But finally, I need to be reminded that I'm part of something much bigger than myself. Now you need to be reminded every week that you are part of something much bigger than yourself. We, we talk about this as communion. It is a, 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 a symbol of our, the reality of our union with God, but also our union with one another, that we do this together, communal embodied rhythm of remembrance. But it's not even just about our communion with God and with each other. It's also about the reality of our communion with the church around the world. That, that God has called a people to himself from every tribe and nation and people and language. And we have brothers and sisters that we've not met yet, but they are brothers and sisters nonetheless. And they are worshiping God on this day in every other part of this globe. And they too will come to this table and they too will be reminded that we are part of each other. That we're part of something much bigger than ourselves. And it's not even just about our connection to the church globally. It's also about our connection to the church historically. That when we come to this table, we're, we're reminded of our connection to the church of the past, what the tradition refers to as the communion of saints, that we are one with the church of the ages who have found their unity through Jesus and what he has done on our behalf that we commemorate when we come to this table. That we are united together Joining God in his mission to the world. I, I love the way it's captured in one liturgy that's prayed by Christians around the world when they come to the table. They pray, pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here, on these gifts of bread and wine, that we may be for the world, the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. By your spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at his heavenly banquet. Isn't that good? That we would be one with one another, one with Christ, one with one another, and one in ministry to the world until he comes again. We come each week to be reminded that we are part of something much, much bigger than ourselves. Why do we do communion? It's a communal embodied rhythm of remembrance. Why do we do it this way? To remember with our whole bodies, with our feet, our hands, our teeth, our taste buds. And why do we do it so often? We need to remember that sin is a big deal, but that we're loved beyond imagination and that we're part of something much, much bigger than ourselves. We reach back to the past. We look ahead to the future as we come and remember. Let's pray. Our Father, this morning, we thank you for your love that is greater than we dare to hope or dream. And we pray that as we partake of these elements this morning, that we will experience the reality of your love. More than merely calling it to mind, God, that we would taste and see that the Lord is good. 
And so I pray, Lord, that you would move by your spirit across this room as we respond to you as is fitting to each of us this morning. God, for those of us who today need to be reminded of the reality that sin is a big deal and to, to bring those things before you that are holding us back and tripping us up, not that we have to have all of our stuff together before we can come to this table. This table is a table of grace and mercy and forgiveness. But they, we would examine our hearts and see what we need to bring to you, what we need to relinquish to surrender to you this morning. God, for people who need this morning to know your love that surpasses knowledge, may they experience it in a profound way this morning. And we celebrate the reality that we are connected to the church around the globe, the church through the centuries. We join them in participating in your mission in the world. Move among us now as we respond in worship and communion and prayer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. To learn more about who we are, visit irvingbible.org new.